This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our conversations over the next couple of weeks will be interesting. They're interviews from this summer's General Assembly podcast stage. I'm going to warn you, you will hear a mariachi band in the background, and it was rather noisy inside and sounds like some of our guests and myself are yelling at times. Enjoy the conversations. This CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK devotes its energy to the formation of ministers rather than transformation of information. BSK works to cultivate the virtues, skills, habits, and pastoral imagination necessary for Christian leadership. BSK is an active in supporting women in ministry and racial reconciliation. Currently, BSK offers a Master of Divinity degree in concentrations available in pastoral care and counseling. BSK offers multiple contexts in which to learn. Classes are offered in Georgetown, Kentucky, on the campus of Georgetown College, or on the campus of Simmons College of Kentucky in Western Louisville, Kentucky. Starting next year, BSK will offer additional concentrations in rural ministry. Discover affordable theological education and how it can be, how affordable it can be. 80% of BSK graduates leave with no student debt. So contact BSK's Director of Admissions, Abby Sizemore, at 502-863-8301 or visit their website at bsk.edu. Well, for those that are following us online and those that are here for the conversation, our first guest is Dr. Reverend Emmanuel McCall. He was the founding pastor of the Fellowship Group in East Point, Georgia, and the Christian Fellowship Baptist Church. Previously, he served on the executive staff of the Home Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention from May the 6th, 1968 until October 1991. He is visiting faculty member at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and at theological seminaries in Ghana, Liberia, Nigeria, West Africa, and Emory University in Atlanta. He serves as the vice president as the World Baptist Alliance at one point, and as well as adjunct faculty member at McAfee School of Theology of Mercer. Additionally, he has served as the moderator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Global. Uh, Dr. McCall, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, sir. So, you have, as we were talking about in our conversation before, you have 68 years of ministry experience. 68 years of ministry. I started at age 14 in a little church in Pennsylvania. 
and uh, the Lord has been with me since. And 68 years, and CBF has been complimented by a lot of other denominations and networks to say that we have some of the youngest ministers, ministers across the board. 68 years of experience. What would you say the secret is to the longevity and success that you've seen in your vocational calling? I've been blessed with senior ministers who are kind to me, who uh, put up with my mistakes, <laughs> with my youthfulness, who helped me understand better the ways of God and the ways of the ministry, who encouraged me as a pastor, who um, corrected me when I needed correction, and who were friends all along. So I give a lot of credit to the men who preceded me, who fathered me in the ministry. Mm. I know it's probably difficult to think about, okay, finding in those 68 years, but I want you to consider, um, what was the most challenging thing you faced uh, in all these years of ministry? Oh, that's hard to uh, pin down because there have been a number of challenges coming to the Home Mission Board in 68 to um, begin the program of racial reconciliation was a challenge. The uh, years that I spent at the Home Mission Board, 23, were a challenge. And then uh, leaving at a crucial time before I got fired, and that was just when the convention was changing horses, so to speak. Uh, and the Lord put me in a congregation that was wanting to get started. And seeing that congregation grow has been a wonderful challenge. Uh, it's still existing, still doing fine, but after I retired the first time, um, that particular church called a young man who really didn't understand the ministry, split the church four ways, and uh, part of that split group asked me to come out of retirement, pastor them, and I've done that. After four years, I thought they were ready to go on their own. And when I stepped back, they called another young man who split them up pretty bad. So they called me back two years ago and said, would you come back and fix this up? So <laughs> here I am at 82, still working with that congregation, trying to make 82. things happen. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Wish the Lord let me stop and get a rest a while, but it's up to him. I'm going to keep moving as long as he says move. Well, I've, I've been doing this for <laughs> a fraction of the amount of time that you have. Um, and I can think of those challenging moments, but certainly I think the moments for me that propel me forward into um, waking up on those Sunday mornings with so much joy to be a part of a local community of believers um, that joy of going into Monday morning to working with a staff of people, it's those, it's those moments, those uh, fulfilling things that I keep going back to that remind me of my calling. So I wonder if you might share uh, some, of those, some of those fulfilling moments along the way for you. There have been a number of them. As I've seen racial reconciliation happen in the Southern Baptist Convention, as I've seen the convention open to other ethnic groups, as I worked with churches, state conventions, associations, and racial reconciliations, those have been high moments for me. The uh, Lord has also blessed me to see 21 men uh, and women go into ministry, and I've been able to nurture them and help them along. So those have been some of the great moments of my life. Hmm. 
what's what's one moment that you will remember as as the apex moment of your ministry? I've been blessed with a lot of them. I don't know that it's possible to even pick out one. I think of some of the great men that I've had the joy of working with um, in Kentucky when I was there. John Claypool and I were part of the group that helped revolutionize race relations in Kentucky. This would have been in 62 to 68. And that's what brought me to the Home Mission Board because of that work there. Um, getting to know some of the great men of the past, Arthur Rutledge, Wendell Ballou, uh, these have been men who made a whole lot of, Christ of uh, contribution to the Christian church and having been able to partner with them has been a joy. You had to wait to year 68 to say that being interviewed on this stage with a mariachi band in the background. <laughs> That'll be a highlight. That is a me. highlight. I don't think any of us were, were anticipating. Um, so for 68 years, you've been working alongside Baptists in all different yeah. forms. Yeah. Um, you've, seen a lot of, you've seen a lot of high moments. We've seen in the last couple of years a lot of low moments. Yeah. Um, what would you say have been uh, some of the most challenging moments as far as race relations working with Baptists over the last 68 years? Uh, I thought we had a good system worked out where there was cooperation when I was with the Home Mission Board, where there's cooperation between state conventions and associations and churches. To see that dissipate, was a heartbreaker. Uh, that's how the work got done because we all worked together. Uh, to see some of the men who were great contributors to racial reconciliation and see them abused that way they were. Foy Valentine, Victor Glass. Um, these were men who really gave their all and to see the way that they were treated, that, that was a hard blow. A lot of good men, Claypool, I mentioned him earlier. I remember when he was um, booed at the SBC because he spoke up for racial reconciliation. I'm sure that you've been around a lot longer than I have, uh, even though I've got gray hairs. Days. I've got a few gray beard, you know, gray hairs in my beard. But uh, in 2018, I would have thought that we have come a lot further than we have. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to to the local congregation, to the everyday pastors and lay leaders, that what they can do to continue to see um, relations uh, around race in this country continue to transform for the positive? There's a whole lot that the initiative of CBF is doing, and I hope we'll get behind Susie Painter and those who are leading this movement in CBF. The uh, McCall Initiative, I'm honored to be, have it named with me, but it symbolizes something that we were trying to do at the SBC. That is to get black conventions and white conventions working together in a way that was contributing to the kingdom. CBF is getting ready to do that through this new initiative. Uh, this, to me, holds our future. If we can keep from being disappointed by what's happening nationally with the downplay of attitude, if we can keep from letting that get to us, I think we can pull it out again. 
Tonight was an encouraging service. As I listened to the various groups represented, I took great courage in what CBF is doing now and knowing the potential that is out there yet. Well, Dr. McCauley, you uh, don't need my validation for anything. Uh, you have served 68 years faithfully uh, to the work that God has called you to. And I can say as a local church pastor, as a member of the CBF staff, that we all have been formed by your work. Thank you, sir. Uh, so thank, thank you for you. taking the time out to thank have you. this conversation tonight. Glad to do it. Maybe the next time we'll get a different orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's perfect timing to tell you about one more of our sponsors for this conversation. CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Wake Forest University School of Divinity equips religious leaders to respond to the changing needs of communities and creates opportunities for mutual learning and critical dialogue. With an intentional investment in reimagining theological education, the School of Divinity has launched two initiatives, the Collaborative of Public Religious Leadership and the Baptist Commons, these two dynamic initiatives that put community partners and their projects in the conversation with the School of Divinity to engage in the work of justice, reconciliation, and compassion. To find out more information, visit divinity.wfu.edu or call 336 758-3748. All right. This CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by Fellowship Southwest, the new cooperative Baptist fellowship network that embraces and ministers alongside of CBF Oklahoma, CBF Texas, and CBF West. So if you live in American Southwest, please consider joining the Fellowship Southwest. And if you live elsewhere but like to do missions and ministry with the Southwest, please consider working alongside Fellowship Southwest. For more information, visit fellowshipsouthwest.org or call 214-335-7719. I believe that is Marv Knox's personal cell phone number. Or email mknox at cbf.net. Okay. Our guest is Xiaochen Caps. She serves as the CEO of Hopeful Horizons, a nonprofit organization that provides safety and healing for victims of child abuse, domestic violence, and sexual assault in Buford, South Carolina. Or if it was North Carolina, it would be Beaufort. Uh, and it is, she's a member of the Baptist Church of Buford. Xiao Chen joins a long and historic list of CBF moderators. Uh, so let's, let me ask a pressing question. What was the experience like serving as the moderator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? It was like a roller coaster ride. <laughs> it was exciting, exhilarating, hard, nauseating, <laughs> and everything <laughs> on the spectrum. Uh, but no, seriously, it was it was an honor, and uh, I met some of the most wonderful people serving with them. So I I was happy to serve. Well, I would say, um, after you said the, the term nauseating, what, what would you tell Gary Dollar as he prepares for this, this new role? To brace himself. <laughs> and buy Dramamine. Uh, that's very <laughs> important. Uh, what, was, what was the biggest takeaway from your experience? Um, I, you know, I, I learned a lot. Um, I especially learned how hard it is to be a moderate Baptist. So 
And that was, that was a good, I think a good thing, eye-opening for me. I think a lot of times where we're in circles where we uh, are more the same than we are different, but this whole process has allowed me to see a much wider spectrum of our family, of our CBF family. Um, and that really changed me and I, I've grown in my respect and my deep affection for the diversity we have and really appreciate it a lot more. For those that are joining us on Facebook Live, we are speaking with Xiao Chen Caps. Um, you've uh, followed the vocational calling into providing safety and healing for victims of, of child abuse. And this isn't something that many people pursue. Um, so tell us about that sense of calling to this particular field of advocacy. Right. So um, that really, that calling came when at 16 years old, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And interestingly, through the witness of uh, Baptist missionaries in Singapore. And one of the things that drew me to my faith, to Christianity, was all the stories of Jesus reaching out to those who are disadvantaged and marginalized in society, the lepers, the women, um, welcoming the children. Um, so those stories have been so integral in my faith development. And when I became, when I fought, when I decided to follow Christ, that came that was part of the package. I, I, I never questioned that that was what I needed to do. So I, when I went to college, I decided to pursue a major that would allow me to live into that calling, which was social work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went on to seminary to graduate school and graduated from the Carver School of Church Social Work from Southern Seminary. Mm. Um, we've recently witnessed the dismissal of a denominational leader as a result of his complicity in, in covering up sexual assault and the deplorable words about domestic violence victims. Um, and at the same time, um, this is somewhat of a microcosm of how many churches have not spoken about domestic violence mm -hmm. and sexual assault. So for you, where, where does the conversation begin for local churches and clergy? Yeah, I think um, it's for, uh, on the church level, Pastors, ministers, leaders of churches need to, to take a step in, in breaking that silence because you're absolutely correct. Domestic violence, sexual assaults, they thrive on silence. And the more silent we are about the topics, um, the more uh, we essentially, um, it breeds the, uh, what happens and it, it doesn't stop it. It just creates more and more deeper problem. And it really, um, Victims feel sh a lot of shame when there's that kind of a silence and there is a sense that because we can't talk about it, uh, there is uh, the blame, they, they carry the burden of the blame because of that silence. So I think it's really important to start the conversation in churches. And of course, there are many ways that, that churches can do that. Pastors can certainly use the pulpit to do that. Um, in teaching, in Wednesday nights, different opportunities for different types of workshops that would help educate the congregation about the, uh, the issue. Hmm. Trying to come around this, this conversation, it's, it sometimes can feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, most of the time people are, are silent. So what would you tell followers of Jesus who are in the day in, day out process of life on how they might become advocates against domestic violence? 
I think if we don't have to look far uh, in terms of the gospel of Jesus on needing to be uh, to serve the least of these, um, needing to be that voice for those who have no voice, and certainly victims of abuse often do not have a voice. Uh, important for us to understand that we live and still live in a very victim-blaming culture, and um, but the church can be at the forefront of that. But unfortunately, uh, what we find is churches also fall into the trap of uh, victim-blaming and into this culture of um, not wanting to talk about the matter. And it is, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's a difficult topic, first and foremost. Nobody likes to talk about it, uh, but we, we need to lean into that discomfort and make efforts to have those safe spaces to start talking about it. You do work that often goes unnoticed. Mm -hmm. um, probably in the last couple of months, it has become more noticeable because this is something people are talking about. Mm -hmm. So what would you say um, is the biggest celebration of your work? Whenever a victim finds their voice to speak up and uh, to make it known, to make their um, abuse known to the public, to be able to use their voice to help other victims. I think this whole Church to Me Too movement has certainly created that platform for victims to find the courage to finally be able to let their voices be heard. So I'm, I'm just grateful that we've come to this time where we are uh, more serious about listening to the voices of victims because breaking that silence for a victim, finding their voice is often, and telling their story, stories, is often the first step of healing. So that's the piece that I celebrate in this moment is just victims having that platform and finding that courage from other victims to be able to speak out. Well, Xiao Chen, um, you don't need my validation, but thank you for the great work that you do every single day, uh, helping those that are facing domestic violence and child abuse. Um, and on behalf of CBF, thank you for uh, an amazing year of service as the moderator. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement, Christ-centered, Bible-based, ministry-focused. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body, drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students, rather we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you.
All right, this podcast conversation is brought to you by Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK devotes its energy to the formation of ministers rather than the transfer of information. BSK works to cultivate the virtues, skills, habits, and pastoral imagination necessary for Christian leadership. BSK is active in supporting women in ministry and racial reconciliation. Currently, BSK offers a Master of Divinity degree with a concentration available in pastoral care and counseling. BSK offers multi-contexts in which to learn. Classes are available in Georgetown, Kentucky on the campus of Georgetown College or on the campus of Simmons College of Kentucky in West Louisville, Kentucky. Starting next year, BSK will offer additional concentrations in rural ministry. Discover how affordable theological education can be. 80% of BSK graduates leave with no student debt. Contact BSK's Director of Admissions, Abby Sizemore, at 502-863-8301 or visit their website at bsk.edu. Well, for our second CBF conversation, for those that are joining us uh, live on our Facebook stream and those really awesome people that are joining us right here, our guest is Dr. Rob Sellers. He is the... Wow. Wow. The first set of groupies for any of our podcast interviews. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. So Dr. Sellers is the professor of theology and missions at Logsdon Seminary, who carefully placed uh, Logsdon's vendor table right here directly next to the podcast stage. So prior to Logsdon, Dr. Sellers served in international missions and has taught in more than 40 countries. Dr. Sellers, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you very much, Andy. It's really good to be here. So um, you're in Texas, and I don't know if you know this, but Texans believe that Texas is the center of the universe. Um, that's just what I've been told. Um, but you've, you've taught in seminaries uh, in Indonesia and in the Philippines. Um, this is kind of a broad question, but how do students differ by locale and context when it comes to theological education? Well, that's a great question. Let me just begin by saying that all over the world in different cultures, there is this feeling that they are the center of the world. And in fact, uh, often it is expressed that they are the belly button of the world. <laughs> and so I think that that might even apply to Texas. There would be the belly button of uh, theological education. I don't know how you want to take that, but uh, at any rate, the, the way that students vary from place to place, of course, has to do with culture. And people come to the seminary or come to Bible study in their local congregation, and they bring with them all of their cultural understanding and all of their insights that they've gotten from life experiences. And so, of course, uh, it doesn't uh, necessarily translate that someone who grew up in Oklahoma or Texas or Georgia went to school in the U.S. and then goes to teach uh, seminary in Asia or in Africa can just plop down in the middle of that new society with those students and expect that they will understand all of the cues and all of the clues about, about life in Baptist world America. And so, of course, one of the things that is, is incumbent upon people who do cross-cultural teaching is to acclimate themselves to the new culture, to learn everything that they possibly can and try to understand what makes these students tick and what are their needs and what are their uh, desires. And so it's really important to listen and to learn. 
And I think the first posture of going in any place uh, to be a part of theological education or ministry in any type is to learn what that culture is about and to hear the people. We need to listen in order to earn the right to speak. Hmm. Uh, you might not use this language, or maybe you would, so I can't put words in your mouth, but uh, missiology for a long period of time was how can we make you um, what white Euro-American Christianity looks like? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen a, a tremendous shift in the last 25 plus years. So walk us through what effective and transformational missional ministry looks like today in the U.S. And then uh, give us some context uh, of what it might look like, for example, in Indonesia where you've, you've uh, taught before. Well, let me begin by saying Philip Jenkins who uh, is a visiting or distinguished professor at Baylor from time to time, uh, wrote a book several years ago in which he made the claim, and I think it's been, it's been justified, that the center of the Christian world is moving to the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, that it will not be too many years before the continent with the greatest number of Christians in the world will be Africa. And so Jenkins makes the point that no longer, of course, is the center of the Christian world Western Europe, and it is fast not becoming North America, but it is becoming Africa in the Southern Hemisphere. And so what this means for American theology students and and ministry students is that we have to learn about our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. We have to study theology written by... uh, Latin American and African and Asian theologians. We have to read texts by women. We have to read texts by gay Christians. We have to read texts by people who have a different context and a different way of understanding God than we do. So no longer is it satisfactory or enough to just read Bart and Bultmann and Bonhoeffer and Tillich and all of the classic theologians of Western Europe or the ones who have come out of North America. But we have to be familiar with the Southern Hemisphere, and they have much to teach us. And so I really think that Baptist seminaries all over CBF life should be teaching their students about third world theologies, two thirds world theologies. I think they should be taking their students on study abroad programs in other parts of the world. I think they should be introducing them to, uh, to people of other faiths and learning with their students what it means to listen and to learn and to earn the right to share. And this is a, this is a challenging thing. We have for too long thought that everything that was worth learning was from the Northern Hemisphere and Western Europe and North America. We have to get over that idea and realize that people from the Global South have much to teach us. For those who are joining us on Facebook, we're interviewing Dr. Rob Sellers from Logs and Seminary here at General Assembly 2018 in Dallas, Texas. Um, there's been a, a there's never been a greater time of multiculturalism in America. Um, and at the same time, there's been a, a rise in nationalism and intolerance for so-called outsiders. 
Um, so in, in your opinion, what can the church do to fight against <clears throat> ethnic and religious intolerance? I think one thing that we, we have to do is to do our homework. We have to read broadly. We have to read courageously. We have to read things that we think we might not yet agree with uh, in order to learn. It's a part of education. We need to be uh, perceptive and we need to be able to tell the difference between emails and uh, things that come across our computers that are misleading or misinformation or just plain unkind and, and untruthful. We need to, as Christians, to be discerning and to uh, ask God to help us uh, learn what it means uh, to have an open heart and an open mind. So I think one of the things that churches can do is to provide opportunities to expose their members to people of other faiths, to people of other ethnicities, to people who are different uh, socioeconomically, to people who uh, might not be like everyone else in the congregation, through seminars, through fellowships, through times of opening themselves up to those who are different. I think this provides the opportunity for church members to gain a broader understanding of who God's children are uh, in our own communities. Now, we no longer have to go to Africa or Asia to meet people of other faiths. They are right here in our own cities. They're in our own small towns and communities. They are our physicians. They are our school teachers. They are our children's playmates. They are our restauranteurs. If we would just look around us, we would see that there are people, fascinating people with wonderful stories to share with us if we would but open ourselves to them and learn who they are and become neighbors to them. And so if, if any church ministers are listening to this podcast, I encourage you, expose your people to the breadth and the beauty and the diversity of God's world and expose them to learning about people of other faiths, people who are different, because God's world is diverse and God's love is wide, and we need to be God's ambassadors to a wide, diverse world. In a couple months, we'll be coming up um, on a year uh, since Charlottesville. And I know you can probably say for your lifetime, and I can certainly say for my lifetime, I never anticipated uh, that we would see uh, Nazi flags being waved by American citizens um, in a university town, let alone anywhere in this country. And uh, colleagues of mine uh, spoke out against the things that they saw from the pulpit. And many of them were chided by congregations. Some of them, some of them lost their jobs as a result of uh, speaking uh, from the pulpit about such things. So there's, a, there's always a pressure for clergy to speak about their convictions uh, towards social progress that can, that can be so great. Um, and, and yet they're speaking to a congregational base that sometimes can't add up the theological math of how their minister has come to this conclusion. So what would you say to ministers that are seeking to bring transformation in such a challenging era of 
American religion, American politics, and this uh, anti-multiculturalism that we've been speaking about? Well, my dad was a pastor, and, and he counseled me to try to, to create change slowly. He was a lot more patient than I am, and I, I think in the classroom I was uh, consistently challenging my students to think for themselves and to risk saying something that might be, might be that they were testing out and they were trying out. So I think there are, you know, there are different opinions about how, how courageous we want to be and how cautious we want to be. But I, I, think the, I think the bottom line, Andy, is that we need to determine in our own hearts under God's uh, conviction who we are and then to stand courageously for what we know is true. And, and a lot of times that does get us uh, misunderstood or criticized. Uh, it, it probably wouldn't come as a surprise for you to know that some students at Logson thought I was extremely uh, dangerous or goofy or uh, not yet a Christian. I did have students praying for my salvation uh, from time to time uh, because they knew that I held some positions that they had not yet thought of. And yet, on the other hand, I had students who said, what you had us read or what you, what you said in class, the random f comment that you made to me in the hall changed my whole perspective. You know, and, and so I think it's worth taking the risk of being honest to our beliefs, our convictions. Uh, I think with wisdom and with kindness, always with kindness, always with love always with a gentle spirit, never in anger, but we have to be who we believe God has called us to be. And sometimes that's a risk, and sometimes we're misunderstood, but I think that's what we have to do. Well, this podcast conversation is also brought to you by Wake Forest University School of Divinity, located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Wake Forest University's School of Divinity equips religious leaders to respond to the changing needs of communities and creates opportunities for mutual learning and critical dialogue. With an intentional investment in reimagining theological education, the School of Divinity has launched the Collaborative for Public Religious Leadership and the Baptist Commons, two dynamic initiatives that put community partners and their projects in conversations with the School of Divinity to engage the work of justice, reconciliation, and compassion. To find out more information, visit divinity.wfu.edu or call 336-758-3748. Dr. Sellers, thank you for shaping many generations of seminarians of how we engage this world with the message of Christ. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. So this CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by Fellowship Southwest, the new Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Network that embraces and ministers alongside CBF of Oklahoma, CBF Texas, and CBF West. Fellowship Southwest's goal is to love neighbors, share Jesus, and change lives. That's because partnering with Jesus should mean making the world a more compassionate and just place to live. Fellowship Southwest is excited about extending CBF's multiculturalism and ecumenical relationships. They believe in fellowship should look and feel like the sounds and voices of the people that populate the delightful, diverse region. The name is intentional. It's Fellowship Southwest, not CBF Southwest, because Fellowship Southwest is engaging in a host of folks of faith and goodwill. 
Fellowship Southwest's other priorities include facilitating missions, strengthening congregations, developing young leaders, and advocating for causes for the dear to the heart of Christ. So if you live in American Southwest, please consider joining the Fellowship Southwest. And if you live elsewhere but would like to do missions and ministry in the Southwest, please consider working alongside Fellowship Southwest. For more information, visit fellowshipsouthwest.org or call 214-335-7719 or email mknox at cbf.net. Whew, that was a read. That was. Great job. Thank you. Our guest is Amanda Tyler. She's the executive director of Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. She leads the organization as it upholds the historic Baptist principle of religious liberty, the defending the free exercise of religion and protecting against its establishment by government. Member of the Texas and Supreme Court Bar, she has been exercising and working in Congress in a private legal practices and serving as a law clerk in a federal as for a federal judge. Amanda often speaks to churches, educational institutions, and denominational gatherings, but she will not be grilled today for the CBF podcast. Amanda, uh, thank, thank you for joining you. the conversation. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Andy. So uh, for those that aren't familiar with your work, those that join us on Facebook Live and others in this space, tell us a little bit more, more about uh, the Baptist Joint Committee. Yeah, so we defend and extend religious liberty for all. We've been doing this uh, for more than 80 years in our nation's capital. We work right on uh, on Capitol Hill in our offices, and we are primarily an education and advocacy organization. We're supported by more than 15 different kinds of Baptist denominational bodies, uh, and most of our work takes us to advocacy in Congress, to uh, helping write briefs for the Supreme Court, and for education efforts, um, ones like these where we can talk about the important value of religious liberty, what it has meant for Baptists, and why Baptists stand up for uh, religious freedom rights for all Americans, for all people uh, of, of all faiths and those of no faith at all. Hmm. Now, the Baptist Joint Committee is right there in D.C., as you're saying, working alongside fighting for religious liberty for all people. But... Then there are those in the small town USA doing the day in, day in process of, of life and work and family. So what would you recommend to those folks of how to advocate for religious liberty where they are? Yeah, I think that we really do see struggles for religious liberty in all of our contexts. And, you know, I, I point to uh, the great commandment to love the neighbor, your neighbor like yourself. And that's how we can show our love for God. And we can think of ourselves, we can think of the golden rule of religious liberty, that don't uh, ask government to promote your religion if you wouldn't want government to promote someone else's religion. And in the same token, don't um, you know put down someone else's religion if you wouldn't want someone to put down your own religion. That if we can respect each other and respect how we all come to these issues from our own unique places that will be better for it, um, that will live up to um, the best of, of us as Americans and our uh, support for religious freedom right in the First Amendment and our, our heritage as Baptists, um, that this is something that Baptists from our beginnings, from more than 400 years ago, have been advocating for religious freedom for all. And we can carry on that heritage um, by bringing some understanding about this issue um, which is desperately needed right now. I think that there's a lot of confusion about what religious freedom means um, and that we can really have conversations with our neighbors about the importance of upholding it uh, and what that means uh, in, in our, you know, our schools and our neighborhoods and our churches. Uh, and that would really uh, help the situation overall. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be Baptist these days, too. It almost seems like you have to be apologetic at times because um, I think so many times Baptists, we haven't represent these, uh, these four fragile freedoms that, um, that are the marker for who we are as, as a group of people. And I, I can say from my personal experience, I mean, I, I grew up Baptist, and uh, really it wasn't until my time uh, at Campbell University and Campbell University Divinity School where I'm being taught by people like Glenn Jodas and Lydia Hoyle who are, who are strengthening my understanding of what it means to advocate for religious freedom uh, for all people. So for, for those that seem, uh, I don't know if you know this, but people get entrenched in their perspectives. Um, yeah. from time to time. <laughs> yeah, from time to time. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that where you are, but... Um, what would you say to, to, to those local church pastors who are trying to bring um, maybe themselves or bring other people along in their entrenched perspectives of how they view other people's faith, uh, other people's rights within their faith? Yeah, I think religious liberty is really a foundational value for so many that, that supports so many of our other freedoms. And in the same way in the church context, freedom is really foundational to our our faith, our existence. Um, you know, we talk about the theology of religious freedom at the Baptist Joint Committee, and we st- when we talk about our theological views, we start in the beginning, in the very first chapter of Genesis, in the way that God created humans uh, to be free beings. You know, God could have created robots who are perfectly perfect in every way, and God didn't do that. Instead, God created humans who could say yes to God and say no to God and all of the consequences that come from those responses. And if we want to live into that freedom, then we have to protect someone's religious freedom to say yes to God and say no to God and be sure that government isn't ever interfering with those choices. And I, I think when we talk about this freedom, this, these roots of religious freedom, of soul freedom, one of those fragile freedoms, as being so foundational to who we are and how we come to our beliefs, um, that that is often a, a productive way to start the conversation and to see that we don't have to be threatened, you know, by the way that other people view the same issues, that we can, we can live into our faith, and in fact, our faith can be even more fully grounded when we have room for difference in our society and when we can respect someone else's difference and they can respect ours. Well, for those that are joining us on, on Facebook Live, we are speaking with Amanda Tyler, the executive coordinator of the Baptist Joint Committee. Um, earlier this month, the Supreme Court ruled on Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with the case, um, the Supreme Court in the United States was dealing with um, owners of a public ac- uh, accommodation that can refuse certain services based on their First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and free exercise of religion. Uh, henceforth, if they have the convictions, they can't serve a particular person um, a cake, I guess, if you will. Uh, this particular si- situation was a same-sex couple um, based on the owner's religious beliefs. Um, for you, and, and, and y'all have written a good bit on this, why, why is this an important case for religious liberty? Yeah, I think this this is a case um, that the Supreme Court took up uh, about a year ago, almost exactly from where we are now. And we were really, in some ways, surprised they took the case. Right, Not that the, this issue has been bubbling up, and there are a lot of different cases that have been working their way through the system. And I think it's one of the most difficult religious freedom cases that we're facing right now Um, because there are religious liberty interests on both sides of the case and uh, what we see are 
it coming kind of into conflict here, the religious views and, uh, and religious freedom of those objecting to same-sex marriage and the religious liberty uh, principles that are at stake if we are going to start denying service to those in our in public accommodation context and in public businesses based on the religious views of someone and so um, you know and we see this in different contexts some contexts we see the religious objector who's actually more participating in the ceremony in the in the in the marriage ceremony itself whether it be arranging flowers for the ceremony or taking pictures or performing in this case that service provider was a little more removed from the ceremony itself. It was being asked to bake a cake, you know, for a, a it wasn't even a religious ceremony, for a celebration of the marriage mm -hmm. um, s separate from the religious ceremony itself. And so we see the context here was really important, um, was the commercial context. And the Baptist Joint Committee took the position in this case, filed a brief in this case, that in this context, that the religious liberty would be best served by not granting an, an exemption to the baker here. That if we were to grant an exemption here, that we, there would be no way to draw the line and not have to grant an exemption for someone who say, based on their religious views, couldn't serve someone of a different religion for their religious ceremony. And that we didn't want to go down that path in this commercial context. Um, the Supreme Court evidently didn't want to decide this case, uh, on these grounds at least, and so found a different uh, way to decide this case. They decided that the baker in the case who had, um, who had brought the, court, the case to the Supreme Court, that his First Amendment rights had been infringed upon when the decider, when the commission had taken up his case and had expressed some opinions um, in their, about his religious views. And I think this is really instructive that, that the commission had failed to remain neutral uh, about his religious views. And I think this is really instructive because it tells us that as important as, important as what we decide in these cases is how we decide it. And I think the Supreme Court has now had laid down a very high bar for civility and respect that we show each other, that we not kind of charge in, as you said, with our entrenched views on these, that we that we remain open-minded and that we respect that there are deeply held religious convictions and, and interests on both sides of these, of these charged disputes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think anyone would say that um, this conversation is contentious uh, in any community. So how can local pastors work with their congregations on creating safe and healthy environments to have conversations around this topic? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think talking about it, I think being open, I think not presupposing the answer, you know, and, and leaving some room for gray, you know, instead of everything being black-white in these contexts, to see that there are interests on both sides that need to be weighed, and that, you know, it's not one-size-fits-all. It's not, oh, this is, you know, I think sometimes people say, well, it's my religious liberty, and therefore I win. But to understand that we're always balancing rights in our society and that we're figuring out how to live together with our different views and in our pluralistic society. We always want to tend towards accommodating religious views, of course, um, but we have to take into, in the, into mind and to, into 
when we're deciding these, the, the very important interests on the other side as well. And that we'll be better served when we can have civil conversations around these issues and understand that we'll be able to work through them, right? And, and instead of, um, again, just presupposing one side or the, I'm on this side or I'm on that side, but to really delve into the issue. And I hope that I would, you know, point people to our resources on the Baptist Front Committee's website. I think that we've written a lot about this issue and, and to try to bring some clarity. In this case, because the Supreme Court didn't decide the issue, this case is going to come up again in some other context. And so if we can um, talk together about them, I think uh, that we'll be better served. Well, you are certainly um, in a place that oftentimes lacks civility. <laughs> you know, or these are the yeah. highest offices in the land. Um, but yet we are in this divisive time. Um, so what, what would you say to, um, to, to local church pastors, to, to congregants about how we can create a space of civility um, when we disagree with those that uh, just we can't see eye to eye, how do we how do we create that civility and common community together? Yeah, I, well, I think the local church can be a, a great example for the rest of our society on how to do this. You know, I think sometimes houses of worship are some of our last safe spaces from political noise, from partisanship, uh, that we have people who come together to be in church family who are you know different ages different backgrounds different races you know all of these all of these differences different political views that um that we can come together you know and that we have something in common is our common that we have chosen to be on this faith journey together that we can model um this kind of pluralism here that we're you know so many other parts of our society are self-sorted you know, and there's been a lot written on this, how we have, you know, these echo chambers on social media and different places. If we can keep the church a place of diversity and diversity of thought, that there's freedom there, I think um, that can be a real model for the rest of our society. And that's really been a focus of our work at the Baptist Joint Committee, has been defending a law that helps protect that by keeping partisanship out of our churches. Um, we've been uh, working on defending the Johnson Amendment, and I think that, that, uh, that to keep our, our nonprofits, including our houses of worship, um, partisan and campaign-free zones will go a long way uh, to promoting uh, that kind of dialogue and civility that you're talking about. Well, I have an initiative that y'all, uh, I just want you to move it to the top of the docket of most important things. It is time for the Supreme Court to change up their robes. Those <laughs> things are so old-fashioned. Let's get some color into them, something. Well, RBG's trying, right, with her <laughs> collars. She's yeah. always, she's, she's mixing it up. She's got it. Yeah. yeah, she's got it. <laughs> well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. And thank you, more importantly, for uh, the hard difficult work that y'all do every single day in dc ah thanks andy appreciate it this podcast is brought to you by david carell of universal creative concepts at ucc they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding david likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget ucc can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for 
Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world.